This is Saving Grace, Living in Light of God's Love, a podcast ministry brought to you by Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of grace. Hello, I'm Carmen Pate, your host for today's podcast. How would one briefly describe God's majesty, His interaction with, and His master plan for mankind? Well, our psalmist David wrote a beautiful song in Psalm 8 that does just that. Our speaker, Mark Ray, will help us glean from this beautiful passage the truth of God's sovereignty and grace over all creation. Reverend Mark Ray is the Vice President of Community Development here at Grace and also the Executive Director of our Grace Center for Spiritual Development. Mark holds a Master of Biblical Studies from Dallas Theological Seminary and a Master of Divinity from Grace School of Theology. He has served churches as an associate pastor and as a lead pastor and has served as COO of a major evangelistic ministry. Let's listen now to Mark as he brings the last message in his Songs of Praise series called Bookends of Majesty. One of golf's immortal moments came when a Scotsman introduced to President Ulysses Grant the new game of golf. Grant was there, and this Scotsman delicately took the tee and placed it in the ground. He very gingerly took the ball and placed it on top of the tee, and then he addressed the ball, waggled a little bit, took a mighty swing, and got nothing but dirt. You've done that before? And this chunk of dirt went flying, flying all over. The spectators got into Grant's beard. It went everywhere. And they all looked, and very quietly, still on the tee, was the ball. He was embarrassed. He stepped back, readdressed it, took another mighty swing, and whiffed it completely. Now he's really embarrassed. He steps back again. He addresses the ball again. Four more times, he takes these incredible, mighty swings at this little golf ball. It doesn't move. There's a crater around the tee. You could build condos on the real estate that he pulled up. And patiently, Grant had been watching this. After the sixth try, he quietly turned to the guy next to him and he said this. There seems to be a fair amount of exercise in this game, but I fail to see the purpose of the ball. (laughs) Purpose. Purpose. What's our purpose here? David pens in this psalm, Psalm 8 that we're going to look at this morning, the exact statement that Grant made. Speaking of purpose, this is what he says in verse 4. What is man that you, God, are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? What is the purpose for me being here and God with you being so immense? What is it about us? What is my purpose? What, what is it, why am I here that you would even give me a second thought? We're in the final psalm in a look at these six different psalms that we've been in, these songs of praise over the course of the last six or seven weeks. And this one, Psalm 8, is considered by many to be the psalm that contains all psalms. 
It's got a little bit of everything in it. In it, David extols the praise of God, his glory in the heavens. In it, we see a perspective between man and God, God and man. In it, we see the plan of God for his creation. In it, we see the praise again that David gives from the perspective of man and his insignificance, and yet the significance that God places on him. Here, in Psalm 8, we get a little lament, we get a little royalty, we get a little enthronement, we get a little of the ascent, we get all of the Psalms wrapped up in these nine incredibly eloquent verses. And sandwiched in between, bookended in between the majesty of God, we see the grace abounding that he's bestowed on us. The grace he's given us as we are between heaven and earth, between the bookends of God's majesty. This morning we're going to look at, first of all, the God of majesty in verses 1 and 2. In verses 3 through 5, we're going to look at the God of mankind. In verses 6 through 8, we're going to look at the God of the master plan. What has he laid out? And then finally, we're going to come back around to the God of majesty again because this this psalm has the same statement at the front that it does at the back. It has bookends. And David makes the exact same statement at the front of this psalm as he does at the back end, only the back end you now have a completely different perspective on what David's doing. So let's start at Psalm 8. I'm going to read this, and, and a little bit different because we don't have screens. As I read it, I'd like you to close your eyes. But first, let me talk to you about the superscription. This is kind of a neat one. Superscription is that little bit of phrase right before that introduces the psalm. It gives us some indication of instruction or some indication of where the psalm might be written from. And in this one, it's a psalm again to the chief musician. So this is to the worship director. This is to the choir director. And in this particular one, it says on the instrument of Gath. Now, you may have a different translation that says something different. And there's about four levels of scholarship that talk about this word. In the Hebrew, it is the phrase, um, let me find it here. It's literally the phrase, al-ha-giddeth. I expect you all to remember that as you walk out the door, al-ha-giddeth. The scholarship on this ranges from, it's a, it's a notation about music to it's an instrument from the place of Gath. We know that story about David going back to the place of Gath where Goliath was from. But there's also scholarship that suggests that this is the Hebrew word for wine press. So this could be a song from the wine press. I kind of like to land there. That's just a cool thought for me, that this is a song from the wine press. Why? Because the wine press is a place where something of God we get to work with something that God has created and something else is made. So a song from the wine press, that's, I'm just going to kind of say that's where we are. This is a song from the wine press. Verses 1 and 2 as we look at the God of majesty. Close your eyes and just listen. David says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. So David starts this psalm with 
the, this, this statement, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And he's going to end the psalm with that same phrase. But he makes two statements here, O Lord, our Lord. And in the Hebrew, that's two different words. The first word he uses is the word O Yahweh. Yahweh being defined as the covenant God of Israel, the one who is faithful to keep the covenant of Israel, the covenant relationship that God has made with the nation, and that the nation is to be the representative of God to the world. So first he says to Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the faithful covenant keeper of Israel, and then he says to our Adonai. O Yahweh, our Adonai. The Adonai there, literally translated into the sovereign ruler over all, could also be translated as the anointed one. Gee, does that sound a little bit foreshadowing of maybe where we're going here? But literally, the ruler over all, the sovereign ruler over all. So what David has said in just two names is this is a psalm of praise to the one who is the faithful covenant keeper of Israel, the one who is the ruler over all. Isn't that just wonderful? In two words, the name of God sitting out there, the covenant keeper, the covenant God of Israel, and the sovereign ruler over all. Psalm 110.1, that great messianic psalm where David says, The Lord said unto my Lord, is literally these same two phrases, Yahweh said unto my Adonai, literally God's talking to Jesus here. And so in this psalm, we get a little bit of the messianic beginning where David says the same thing, this is the covenant keeper of Israel, the covenant God of Israel talking to, or in other words, the anointed one, the ruler over all. Isn't that just wonderful? Don't you just kind of sit there and say, okay, let's just put a period right there, and all day long we could sit here and say, oh God, my God. Oh God, our God. Oh Yahweh, our Adonai. How wonderful are you? He goes on and he says, How excellent is your name in your creation. That word excellent literally means the important things of God. What he's saying here is that Yahweh, Adonai, your name is important in your entire creation. It's just a wonderful phrase. Your name is your name of names, Yahweh and Adonai, they are so wonderful, they're so important to you that you have placed them in everything, overall. And it hearkens unto the Savior who is to come. Well, the emphasis here is on the names. The emphasis on the fact that the names are excellent, they are majestic, another translation here. And then he goes on and he says this, you, God, you, Yahweh, you, Adonai, who have set your glory above the heavens. This is a great phrase because the word glory literally translated is this. It is the visible public expression of the character of God. Now think about that for a minute. The visible public expression or the visible public manifestation of God. And he says, you have set that visible public expression of your character even above all that you've created, even above the heavens. Now, I want to try a little experiment with this. We've got the heavens out there, the heavenlies. And he's going to talk about these as the sun and the moon. We sang about these. So we're talking about the heavenly realm, right? The thing that you look up and see, the stars, the planets, the space, the sky, And he has just said, David has just said that you've set your character above those. 
So let me ask you, and this is audience participation here, what in God's character do you see when you look up and see the sky? What of God's character? Now, don't give me omniscience or omnipresence. That's his nature. I want his character. What do you see when you look up in the sky? What of God's character do you see when you look up at the stars and the moon and the sun and the sky? Beauty. Okay. You see God's beauty. That's a good one. The character of God is beautiful. Yes. Great. You see God's faithfulness. You could describe God's faithfulness this way. The stars are always there, right? Sun comes up every day, right? Moon comes up every night, right? Wow. So God's faithfulness. What else do you see? Power. He spoke it into existence, right? With his very words. And his power is there because of the expanse of that. Great. What else? Okay. His majesty is on display there. That's a good one. Just who he is as ruler over all. His majesty is there. What other character do you see? Guidance. Tell me how. The sun comes up in the east. Yeah. And, and how about the old seafarers that found their way because of how God placed the stars in the sky? Great one. His guidance. Another wonderful one. Okay, so let's move down a little closer to us. Now you've got the earth. His creation. And he is, his character is present in his creation too. In the mountains, in the trees, in the mesquite, in the dirt. In the water, in the oil and gas, right? Can I have an amen in the oil and gas? How, how many of you put the oil and gas there? If you got your hand raised, we got to talk. He put it there, and it's magnificent that it's there, and we've got an entire town that was built on it. But here is God, and his character is on display in creation as well. What's on display? What's his character you see on the earth? Benevolent. Ooh, that's good. He is a benevolent God. Why? Well, he gave us something to actually get out of the ground and make a living out of. What else do you see of his character? When you see a duck-billed platypus, what do you see of God's character? Sense of humor. Right? Lord, really? (laughs) What else of his character do you see in the earth? Strength and gentleness. You bet, because you see the lion and the lamb, right? What else do you see? Cares about the small things. That's good. What else? Creativity. Creativity. Ooh. Wow. This is a God of the creative. Right? A rhinoceros and a giraffe. A God of the creative. Me and Randy Sims. A God of the creative. (laughs) Right, brother? He's a God of the creative. Now, let me take it a step further. Now we get his visible expression on this earth in Jesus Christ. What of the character of God do you see in Jesus Christ? Oh, this one's getting easy. Come on. Forgiveness. Give me some more. Goodness. Goodness. Give me some more. If I need to help you, how about Galatians 5? Love, joy, peace, patience, mercy, justice. All of those, the character of God. Now let me take it even a step further And say, what about you and me? What of the character of God is in you and me? What of the character of God do you see in you and me? Relationship? Okay, so take that a step further. What in relationship expresses the character of God? Love? Trust? Joy? 
Peace. Unity. Unity. That's a good one. What else? It begins to be mind-numbing, doesn't it? When David says the visible public expression of God's character is here in the world. And when we just take a moment to look at it in the heavens, to look at it on the earth, to look at it in Christ, to look at it in you and me, guess what? He shows up, doesn't he? He's in the middle of that. He has set himself above that. Listen to Romans 1, 19 and 20. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God has made himself known in his creation. Amen? And if we, not, if we can't see him here, we're not looking. Because David said it and God said it. He has made himself known to us. Be on the lookout. So he moves on from there. And now David says, Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you've ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Now David says, You are so magnificent, God, that even the babies testify to your greatness. Even out of the mouths of babes... We get to know who your greatness is. And he says, it's an amazing thing to see that even the testimony of babies can silence your enemies. Even the testimony of nursing infants can put to shame those who oppose you. And we who are adults who think we know it all, David says the mouth of babes give testimony that we don't even recognize. I want to share with you just for a moment. I love this. These are letters from children to God. And if you want real wisdom, just listen for a moment. This one from Joyce. Dear God, thank you for the baby brother you sent, but what I asked for was a puppy. I never asked for anything before. You can look it up. Now what Joyce knows is that all good gifts come from God. She also knows that God knows it all because... You can look it up, God. You'll know it. This one from Janet. I love this. Dear Mr. God, I wish you would not make it so easy for people to come apart. I had to have three stitches in a shot. I think there's a budding psychologist or a budding doctor there, don't you think? From Anita. Dear God, is it true my father won't get into heaven if he uses his golf words in the house? There's a few I see that can identify with that one. We're just going to leave God's standard of perfection kind of hanging out there, okay? This one from Nancy. Dear God, I bet it's very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in our family, and I can't do it. (laughs) Right? But here's Nancy who gets the concept of God who is the all-loving God. This one. From Norma, dear God, did you mean for a giraffe to look like that or was it an accident? (laughs) So God the creator, that creative spark that's there. Dear God from Larry, this is great. Maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they each had their own rooms. (laughs) It worked out for me and my brother. So he's the God of relationships like we talked about. 
This one from Marcia. Dear God, my brother told me about how we're born, but it doesn't sound right. What do you think? <laughs> from Donnie. Oh, this is a great one. Dear God, is Reverend Co. a friend of yours, or did you, do you just know him through the business? <laughs> so God's in the business, right? This one from Barbara. If you watch in church on Sunday, God, I'll show you my new shoes. That's sweet. This is one who knows Abba Father. From Charles, dear God, I don't think anybody could be a better God than you. Well, I just want you to know that. I'm not just saying that because you're already God. Right? The mouths of infants, the mouths of children, and they already know who God is. From Jeff, dear God, it's great the way you always get the stars in the right place. Why can't you do that with the moon? Seems to be moving on me. And probably the best one of all, I think this is the next psalmist. This is Thomas. Dear God, I didn't think orange went with purple until I saw the sunset you made on Tuesday night. That was really cool. Out of the mouths of children, God uses those to testify to his greatness. There was a young child of an atheist couple who once said this. Mom, Dad, do you think God knows we don't believe in him? (laughs) Think about that one for a minute. Make no mistake, David lays it out. Our God is a majestic God. Amen? And he can silence his enemies from the mouths of babes. When we move on from there to the God of mankind... Verses 3 through 5. Close your eyes again. Let me read 3 through 5 as we talk about the God of mankind for a moment. David says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. So here's the God of mankind. David now brings this perspective down and he says, when I consider, when I think about, when I ruminate on, and in Hebrew poetry, you you basically make a statement and then you repeat the statement in the next phrase, but you do it from a different perspective. So David says, when I consider your heavens, and under that, the moon and the stars, so he's talking about the heavens and the sky, when I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers that you have ordained. So he's now saying, when I consider your heavens, the moon and the stars, The work of your fingers, the things that you have set into place. Now, what David is thinking about twice here is he's thinking about how magnificent God is that creation could happen by just the movement of God's fingers. That's how easy creation was for him, that just the movement of his fingers, it didn't take his entire body, it's just the movement of his fingers, like a sculptor working in clay, he makes this incredible creation. And David says, when I think about that, when I just consider the moon and the stars, the incredible nature of this, I think about you, and I think about how magnificent you are. Psalm 19.1 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. I was reading the other day about the Hubble telescope, and if you want to know the movement of God's fingers and how magnificent it is, listen to this. Speed of light travels at 186,282 miles per second speed of light 
And if we traveled at the speed of light, it would take 100,000 years for the full spiral of the galaxy of the Milky Way to become visible. 100,000 years, all right? And as, as for the Earth, if the galaxy were represented as the size of North America, so you think of our galaxy, Milky Way galaxy, as the size of North America, our entire solar system would fit in a coffee cup placed somewhere in Idaho. Okay, think about that for a minute. Our entire Milky Way would be the size inside a coffee cup placed somewhere in Idaho. That's how small our Milky Way is in the galaxies that God has created. And then, he, then it says this. Astronomers have estimated that an image in 2004 from the Hubble telescope imaged 10,000 galaxies in a cone of space so slim you could cover it with a grain of sand held at arm's length. So the Hubble telescope, with just this really slim look at the galaxies, noted 10,000 galaxies. If you integrated that over the entire sky, it would mean that there are more than 100 billion galaxies in the visible universe many with more than 100 billion stars in each one. And Psalm 147, verse 4 says this, God calls them all by name. Melissa and I were with uh, Deborah McCurdy and Joyce Fields yesterday. And we were remarking about what it's like to stand on top of a mountaintop in Colorado and how magnificent God is and how insignificant I feel. And what David is saying is, when I think about the moon, the stars, all the things that God put into play, then this next statement, then he says, who am I that you are mindful of me? What is man? And that word is the Hebrew word Enosh. What is weak man that you would even think of me and the son of man that you would visit me? When I think of how magnificent you are, why would you even consider me? But then he says, you visited me. And I began to think during this last week over just this last week, and where has God visited me? How has God been gracious enough to visit me? And it was amazing. Once I started to just think about how God had visited me, some things began to pop up. God visited me this week. My wife calls them divine appointments. God visited me in a number of divine appointments. At lunch, Connie Perrin, who just unfolded some of the most miraculous things that happened in Uganda. It was a divine appointment, and God showed up. God showed up in a thank you note, a note of encouragement that I got from Roger Traxel. God showed up. God showed up in a smile my wife gave me last night. God showed up in conversations that I've had. God showed up in the fact that our air conditioner has been out for the last week and a half, and when you walk out of the air conditioner into the cool, God showed up in the fact that there's air conditioning. God even showed up without screens. God shows up in so many different ways. He visits us. So let me ask you, how has God visited you this week? Yeah, audience participation, one more time. How has God visited you this week? What? Good for me. He showed up and he was good for you. Yeah. How else has God showed up? It's okay. You can, you can say a few things. He showed up in his word. That's a great one. I was reading one of my favorite authors this week, and he showed up in that book, and then he showed up in this book. How else has God visited you this week? 
God hasn't showed up at all. Through your kids, okay? Oh, great. Mouths of babes, God showed up in your kids. In your small group, God showed up in your... Great. God showed up in your friends and your neighbors and your relatives. We were, actually, we were at Sam's yesterday, and God showed up in two men that came forward and gave us their testimony about how God had pulled them out of drug addiction and alcohol addiction. It was great. Right in the middle of Sam's parking lot, God showed up. He visited. How else has God visited you? In church, we hope he's visited you here. Where else has he visited you? In music, great. In appreciating the small things, yeah. What David is telling us is, God, we are so insignificant. Why would you do this and yet you have? What is the single biggest way that God visited us 2,000 years ago? With him Self. And he showed us his character. He showed us who he is in his son, Jesus Christ. David moves on from there and he says, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you visit him? And then he says in verse five, one of the hardest translated phrases to get around, for you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Now, again, this is Hebrew parallelism. Because he's going to go down in verse 6 and kind of reflect on that. But first he says, you have made him a little lower than the angels. The literal, the literal translation of this out of the Hebrew is this. You have caused him to lack little from God. The word there for angels is, is the word Elohim. And it can be translated a number of different ways. One of the ways, the two good translations of this is, you have, you have caused him to lack little from or in comparison to God. Now here's the idea behind this. David says, what is man that you're mindful of? What is man that you would visit him? You have caused him to be a little lower than God. Now, think about where God's realm is. He's ruler over all. He's just stated he's Yahweh and he's Adonai. He is ruler over all. But in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, he puts man in charge of the earth. So in literal, in literal state... God is ruler over all, and he's placed man a little lower than him, not in status, not in, not in we're being God, but in that this is our realm of rulership. And one of the purposes he's given us here is to have dominion over this creation. I, I marvel at that with God, and I marvel at this way. When my sons were growing up, I always did the yard. I mowed the yard, I edged the yard, and it was perfect. I mean, I would... I'd get down and look and see if there was any grass sticking up, and I'd go over and mow it, or I'd hand... I, I really had a groomed yard. It's hard to do that here, but in other cities in Texas, you can have a... I'm mowing dirt right now, but in other places, I was mowing grass. And I would groom it perfectly, and I taught my boys how to do the yard, how to edge it, how to mow it, how to blow it, how to do all of that kind of stuff correctly. And it was a really tough thing for me to turn over the responsibility for the yard to my boys. Why? They didn't necessarily do it the way I wanted it done. Well, Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says God created this and he turned over. As he rules over all, he turned over his creation to us. How hard is it? If I, if, if I can identify with trying to get, give just the yard over to my sons to do it right, what did God do in, in turning over his creation to us? Is this a gracious God or what? 
And so what he says here is, this is what he's done. That he, one translation here is that, that God has made us a little lower than him. That's one translation, a little lower than Elohim. So God's, creation, God's realm, his rule is over all, and ours is here. It's not meaning we're God, but it's meaning that we have a rulership here. Now, the other translation is this, the one you see here. For you have made him a little lower than the angels. You go to Hebrews 2, and this is a little lower than the angels means literally that, that we have this realm of responsibility here while the angels dwell up in heaven. And so we've been made a little lower. But the Hebrew writer takes this an even step further, and he points this directly to Christ. And he says, here's what God did. Because the first Adam messed it up through sin, perverted this whole thing. And by the way, if Adam hadn't sinned, guess who would have? Me. Through that first sin, Adam messed up this dominion, messed up this rule that we have here. And so what does God do? He sends his son and made his son a little lower than the angels to come redeem it all and restore back the original Genesis 1, 26 through 28 responsibility that we had, not only to have dominion over this, but to be the representative of God's character into his creation. And so what we miss in this thing, our purpose that we miss in this thing is we go about every single day doing our work and doing the things we do is we miss the fact that God has ordained this for us to have this rule and dominion in Christ here and to represent him to the rest of his creation. That's purpose. And to that extent, he has crowned us with glory and honor. He's crowned us with glory. Now think about this, the visible public expression of God's character. So he's crowned us with glory. Literally what he's done is, as he has made us in his image, he's given us his character. We just said it. Can I see God's character in you? Yeah. Why? Because of Christ. So what he's given us is this incredible statement that as he bestowed this purpose on Adam, and Adam messed it up. He then bestowed it through his son, who he made lower than the angels, and he redeemed it all. Francis Schaeffer says this, and I love this. We're going to take just a second and do this. Francis Schaeffer says that at the fall in Genesis 3, there were five divisions. And I had these wonderful images up on the screen, so just think about these beautiful screened images of these five divisions. There were five divisions that occurred at the fall and two that occurred at the crucifixion. Here are the five divisions. First, man was separated from God. So at the fall, man was separated from God, right? Taken out of the garden, moved outside. The second one, man was separated from himself. That at death, we get separated from our physical body. That at death, the body goes here and decays and the soul goes there. Man was then third. Man was separated from other men. At death, we get separated from our wife, from our children. So that's a third division. The fourth, man was separated from nature. Remember, he says in the curse that when we till the soil, up will come what? Thorns and thistles. So we've been separated from what nature, from what God intended nature to do for us. And fifth, nature has been separated from nature. There's earthquakes, there's storms, there's dust storms, there's floods. And at the crucifixion, there's two more. Christ was separated from the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Christ was separated from humanity. Two thieves on the cross. One accepts him and one rejects him. Now, 
Schaefer says, but in Christ, we have the Redeemer. We have the one who has been crowned with glory and honor. The one that, that Philippians 2 says that the Father raised him up because of what he did on this earth. The Father raised him up and has brought every tongue and every tribe and every nation under subjection to him. He has become the ultimate for that Genesis 1, 26 through 28 statement. And in Christ... This is what happens. This is the Redeemer. This is the Savior, not just of mankind, but literally the Savior of the world. So hear it. First, man was separated from God. When Christ came and was crucified and was resurrected by trust in Him, we have a relationship with God the Father. Amen? So that separation from God has now been, the door's been opened for that. Man was separated from himself at death. Well, because of the resurrection of Christ, guess what we get to to rejoice in? That the body and soul are coming back together at some point in time when we're resurrected. That man was separated from other men. Well, we know. Believers in Jesus Christ, we're going to see him again. And we'll be reunited with him again. Man was separated from nature. I love this one. The curse said out of the ground came what? Thorns and thistles. And Christ wore what on his head at the crucifixion? Crown of thorns. He is the redeemer even of nature and redeeming us back to nature. And he's also the redeemer where nature has separated from itself. The earth groans in Romans for the return of Christ who will then make all well when the new Jerusalem comes down. The new heaven and new earth comes down and it's all recreated in Christ. So those things come back and he is truly the savior of the world because of that. And also Christ... When he was separated from the Father, why have you forsaken me? Because of his resurrection, he's now been reunited with the Father. And he was separated from humanity. Now that he has resurrected, we have the choice to trust him and to be reunited with him. He is truly the Redeemer, the Savior of the world. And what we see here is that God said he made him a little lower than the angels out of Hebrews 2 to do just that, to redeem us. And then he crowned him with glory and honor. It's the reason why Christ had to be the God-man. If he was just God, he couldn't do all that for us because the promise in Genesis chapter 1 was given to man, so Christ has to be part man in order to fulfill that part. Isn't it incredible what God did? That even when we messed it up, he made a way. So there is God, the God of mankind. We go to verse 6. Six through eight. Close your eyes one more time. David says, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, the sheep and the oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. Literally what he is saying here is that you have put all in subjection under him. And the foreshadowing here to Christ is that ultimately it's all there. Matthew 28, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth and under the earth has been given to me. It's all put in subjection under Christ. Psalm 2 says it. God says, I will put my king on my hill. Psalm 110 says it. Yahweh said to Adonai, God talking to Christ. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says it. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And Hebrews 2 says, Christ is crowned with glory and honor. It's the exact statement out of Psalm 8. So what has God done? God has provided his son. For his creation. 
So we've seen the God of majesty, we've seen the God of mankind, and the master plan that God did is he put his son in the position as God-man and brought all in subjection underneath him. And we see him in every corner of his creation. Ultimately, we now get to the other bookend, and we see it from a completely different perspective now, as David says, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how excellent is your name in all the earth. So he concludes it with this statement. I've, this is the Mark Ray paraphrase. O Yahweh, covenant keeper of Israel, O Adonai, sovereign ruler over all, your character is so important that it echoes in every corner of your creation. We were created to be God's rulers. Through the first Adam to be God's rulers over all his creation. Adam and us, we blew it. But God through Christ has redeemed all of that. And David extols the virtues of a God who has majesty, who created mankind with a purpose, who put the master plan into play and then said, you are the majestic one. Purpose. We dare not miss it. Tennessee Williams tells the story of a man named Jacob Brodsky. Jacob Brodsky was a shy Russian Jew whose father owned a bookstore. He wanted his son to go to college, but the younger Brodsky, all he wanted to do in life was to marry his childhood sweetheart. Her name was Lila. Lila was a French woman, effervescent, bubbly, overwhelming in her enthusiasm, and Jacob was this contemplative, quiet man who only wanted to marry her. Brodsky went off to college in obedience to his father. A couple weeks into his college experience, his father passed away, and Brodsky came home, prepared the funeral, buried him, married Lila, and took the keys to the bookstore. They had a little apartment over the bookstore, and he took over the management of the bookstore. It was a perfect fit for Jacob Brodsky. He had everything he wanted. But for Lila, this lifestyle became a cage. It became constrained. It became too small for her who had these great ambitions. And one day, a talent agent came, heard her singing, and said, I'd like you to go on tour with me. We're going to go with this vaudevillian act and go on tour. This was back in the 1930s. She decided life with Jacob was too small, and she needed to go figure this out. So she decided to leave. Heartbroken, Brodsky handed her a key to the front door of the bookstore, and he said, you need to take this. He says, you'll want it someday. Your love is not so much less than mine that you can't get away from it. You'll come back sometime, and I'll be waiting for you. She kissed him and left, and Brodsky went deeper and deeper into depression and deeper and deeper into the bookstore, and all he did was read and read and read and read and read, and he never left the bookstore. That became his life. It became his obsession. 
15 years later, Lila came back. She had a key to the bookstore. She opened the front door. She walked in and Brodsky didn't recognize her. He looked at her and he said, do you need a book? She was taken back that he didn't recognize her at all. And as he was As she was taken back, she started to reorient herself about what she could do. And so she started to tell him this story about a book that she was trying to find, but she couldn't remember the name of it. She said, it's this story about a young couple. One was Russian, one was French. And they met each other, and they fell in love, and one went off to to find her career, and the other one stayed behind, and then they were brought back together incredibly. And he said, I'm not familiar with that book. She said, don't you know it's the story of Jacob and Lila? It's that story. He said, I think maybe Tolstoy wrote something like that. She dropped the key. She ran out of the shop. And he returned to his desk, unaware that the one he had been waiting for had walked out the door. Williams wrote this story. It's called Something by Tolstoy. And he wrote the story as a reminder to us, the reminder of our purpose. And he says this. He says that Jacob Brodsky no longer knew the purpose of his waiting and his grieving. All he remembered was the waiting and the grieving itself. He had lost the purpose. David tells us the purpose. We're the Lord's. We are his representative to his creation. And Christ showed us beautifully what that means. Friends, let's not miss it. You have been listening to Mark Ray. What a beautiful insight Psalm 8 provides into the majesty of God and the grace and the love he pours out for all of mankind I hope this message drew you to praise His name. This completes our series on Songs of Praise. We hope you are already thinking of friends and family who would benefit from the series. We encourage you to share our podcast. In addition, we're making available to you a free study guide of the entire series, which would be great for personal or small group study. Download your free copy today at gsot.edu forward slash songs. That's gsot.edu forward slash songs. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, the love of Christ can never be earned and can never be lost. You have been listening to Saving Grace, a podcast ministry of Grace School of Theology. For more information, visit gsot.edu slash savinggrace. Views expressed on this podcast may not always be the views of Grace School of Theology or its leadership. 